Hebrews, the better letter. We are almost halfway through the book of Hebrews. If you look at chapter, uh, the chapter number, we're, uh, we're going to be, we already covered chapter 7 last week and chapter 5 last week. Tonight we're going to be covering chapter 6. So we'll already be halfway through the book of Hebrews after tonight. Uh, last week, if you were not able to be with us, we discussed uh, Hebrews chapters 5 and 7. And we looked at how Jesus, we looked into how Jesus is greater than any Levitical high priest that ever was. He is better than the priesthood of Aaron. We saw that Jesus is better as high priest because His reign is everlasting. His reign is eternal. It is unending. It is unfading. We saw that Jesus Christ uh, is better than any high priest because He was the high priest that had no need to sacrifice for His own sins first. Why? Because He had none. And so we also learn that Jesus was better than any high priest because He was no mere man. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And lastly, last week in our period of application, we talked about how Jesus, being our great high priest, He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is able to know what it is like to be a human, what it is like to suffer temptation and He knows exactly what we are going through. And because of His status as our high priest, we can go boldly before the throne of God. And last week, as you just look at our entire overall study, we really, without uh, me mentioning it, we capped off an entire section of the book of Hebrews. And what I mean by that is, the whole first section of Hebrews that we have witnessed and read so far uh, is the author slowly but surely knocking off these celebrity uh, status heroes from the Old Testament, right? All throughout the study we've been talking about Jesus and comparing Him to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, to Joshua, to the priesthood last week. And slowly but surely the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews has been knocking off these people off their mountaintops in comparison to Jesus and making them inferiors. The first class we talked about the prophets. In Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 we see that Jesus is better than the prophets. He is greater than the prophets. In chapters 1 verses 4 through the chapter 2 we see that Jesus is better than the angels. In chapter 3 we saw how Jesus is better than Moses. And in chapter 4 we saw how Jesus is better than Joshua. And then last week in chapters 5 and 7, we saw how Jesus is better than the entire high priesthood, the Levitical high priesthood. But tonight, we're going to be starting a whole new section of the book of Hebrews, the better letter. The writer is not going to compare Jesus to Old Testament heroes anymore, uh, so much as he is going to compare Jesus to Old Testament theology and place them side by side, and the components of the old law next to the components of the new law and the new covenant, and how the old law is entirely inferior up next to it. Instead of the prophets, instead of angels, instead of Moses, instead of Joshua, instead of the high priesthood, we're going to be talking about the covenant, the sanctuary, the sacrifice. And the list goes on throughout the rest of the book. But tonight, it starts with our study tonight. In Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be talking about how Jesus is the provider of a better hope. Jesus, indeed, gives a better 
hope to us as Christians than any hope anyone else has ever had. So if you will, go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word and be turning to chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews. I hope you brought your uh, copy tonight. Hebrews chapter 6. As you're opening it, I want to kind of remind you about where we just were last week as we see the context of chapter 6. You know, we study the Bible a lot and we go straight to the chapter and think, well, this is a chapter that stands alone. Well, no, it goes to the context of the whole book as well as what just went right before it. So we need to look at what went right before the beginning of chapter 6 and kind of remind ourselves that in chapter 5, the writer is trying to establish Jesus as greater than when it comes to the Aaronic, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron. And we saw at the end of chapter 5, close to verse 10, he's ready to really just stomp it out. He's ready to really just boldly proclaim Jesus as the greatest high priest, better than any other high priest. He's ready to drop this final blow when it comes to the Levitical priesthood. But what does he do in verse 11? He has to stop for a minute. He has to pump the brakes we talked about last week. Just when we're ready for him to destroy the Levitical priesthood, right? To make them inferior, to, to show how Jesus is greater than, he pumps the brakes. He's getting ready to explain this order of Melchizedek in verse 10, and then something happens. Instead of finishing this discussion, he has to stop a bit, and for the next chapter, he's going to have to stop and talk about something else. And we see this starting in verse 12 of chapter 5 to get into our context of our discussion tonight. Let's go ahead and read those. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, it says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to the need of milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so for some reason or the other, we are seeing already in this text tonight, as we look at, as we get ready to get into chapter 6 tonight, we're seeing that the audience of this book, the readers of this book, all of, for some reason or the other, we are noticing and realizing that they were not prepared. They were not able, they were not ready to understand or comprehend the depth of meaning when it came to Jesus as the high priest in this order of Melchizedek, they were not prepared. They were not ready. Why? Well, the text tells us. The text tells us exactly why they were not ready, why they were not prepared, why they were not able to comprehend the things that the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. Because he says, instead of maturing yourselves into teachers, instead of becoming teachers yourself, you're still needing to be taught the first principles of the oracles of God. At this point, you should be able to teach these things, but you're not ready. Why? Because you are still hung up on the first principles of the oracles of God. They were still drinking the milk of the Word. They were still babes in Christ. 
They were unskilled in righteousness, it says. They had not exercised their spirituality to be able to discern between good and evil. And so what were they? Even though they were grown, even though they had been in the church for years, they looked like this beautiful little baby, drinking milk, not ready for food, not ready for the deeper, heavier, meatier portions of the law and looking at how Jesus Christ is the high priest. No, they weren't ready for that. They weren't ready for that at all. What instead were they ready for? Instead of being skilled in righteousness, they were skilled in the fundamentals. And that's important, is it not? Is it not important to have a good foundational uh, fundamental uh, faith and understanding of God's Word? Absolutely. But at a certain point, there's a, there's a negative to only looking at the fundamentals. When you look at the context of the whole book of Hebrews, you might be able to find why it is they were stuck on the foundational principles. Because instead of focusing on Christ and focusing on how great Christ was and how much better Jesus was than the Old Testament, what were they focused on? All the heroes of the Old Testament. Instead of looking at how great the New Covenant was, what were they looking at? The Old Covenant and the Old Testament. Instead of looking at the hero, Jesus Christ, and exalting Him, what were they doing? Well, they were still looking back at those prophets, back at Moses, back at the angels, back at Joshua, and back at the high priesthood. So instead of progressing in their faith and, and, and moving on towards the more meatier matters of the law, they were focusing on the past. Instead of meditating on Christ and looking at the blessings that Jesus gave them, they were looking backward at the things that came before. And then Hebrews chapter 6, he's going to address that. He's going to address the incredible spiritual tragedy that happens when we won't grow. In fact, the great spiritual tragedy that takes place in every congregation of the Lord's people when there are members who refuse to grow. That's what Hebrews chapter 6 is going to talk about, so let's go ahead and get into it. Verses 1 through 3 say, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. How does this passage start out? Well, we said Hebrews is the book of therefores. We've got to see why it's therefore. It's in the book time and time again. And he's saying, therefore, because of this spiritual immaturity that we've just read about in chapters 5, verses 12 through 14, because of this immaturity, therefore, it is time to leave the discussion of elementary principles. Because you are totally unskilled, totally not ready to talk about the priesthood or talk about anything of heavy matter, it's time that we leave the elementary principles of Christ, the discussions of all these different things He's about to list, and instead it's time to go on to perfection. 
What does he mean by going on to perfection? Does that mean that he expects them to have a perfect knowledge of God's will and God's word? Raise your hand if you have that. Almost got you. No one has a perfect understanding or, or, or knowledge of God's Word. Why? You know, David Shannon, uh, I heard him say one time, he's the president of Freed Harmon, used to preach at Mount Juliet. He said one time, if you are under, able to understand it, then it wasn't from God. Well, I was like, well, what does that mean? How dare he say that? I mean, God wants me to be able to understand. Well, what he meant was, God is infinite, and we are finite. And so sometimes when we look at God's Word and we try to understand everything about it, we're always going to come up short. In fact, if we were able to understand everything about it, then the book wouldn't be infinite, and the writer of it wouldn't be infinite. But what is he trying to say? He's obviously not saying that you need to have a perfect understanding, even though he says go on to perfection. Because in fact, being perfect and having a perfect grasp on every single topic, every single discussion of spirituality, in fact, is impossible. So what is he trying to say? Well, the word translated here, perfect, is better understood as complete. Go on to completion. Or maybe it is better translated as maturity. Go on to maturity. If you go back and look at verse 14 of chapter 5, it says, uh, of full age. In New King James, of full age. That's that idea of maturity, of full age, maybe even adulthood. Because they were not adults in the faith. They were not eating the pure meat of the Word. They were stuck on the pure milk of the Word, right? And this is what the author is compelling them to do. Grow up! He's telling them to grow up. It's time to grow up. Pursue completion. Pursue maturity. Pursue adulthood. Pursue this perfection. Stop laying the same old foundations over and over again, talking about the same old stuff day in and day out, never stretching yourself, never pressing towards the heavier matters or meatier matters of the law. Instead, you're just focusing on repentance, you're just focusing on faith, you're just focusing on baptism, miracles, and judgments. Is that not what we see in the first three verses? He's saying we need to grow up. We need to leave the elementary principles of Christ. We need to leave the, the first principles of the oracles of God. And we need to pursue, go on to perfection. Go on to maturity and adulthood. This list of things, is it not great to talk about repentance? Is it not great to talk about faith? Is it not great to talk about baptism? Is it not great to talk about miracles and, and the final judgment? Of course it's great. Of course we should talk about that. Of course we should preach about that. Of course we should study about that. But when it came to his audience, he knew that they needed to know a whole lot more. You know, it's almost like those gospel advocate flashcards. You know, when I was growing up, my mother would drill the Gospel Advocate flashcards uh, to me and my brothers. 
And there, well, there they were. Every time we got the green pack, the yellow pack, and the red pack. And that's the difficulty level, right? And there they were every single day it felt like. Maybe we were in the car and we were getting drilled by these flashcards. We knew the answers to every one of them. She starts reading the first two words, Abraham. She starts reading the next three words to the next one, you know, Melchizedek. I don't know what they were anymore. I'm sure I could answer some of them. But that's exactly what maybe the Hebrews' audience was like. They had heard these things about repentance and salvation and, and the fundamentals, and they had laid that foundation so many times in a row that it didn't mean anything anymore. They were still stuck in elementary school. They knew two plus two, and that was it. That's four, right? They were able to know these elementary principles, but that's all they knew. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, we need to press on and leave these fundamental principles. We need to talk about other things. We need to talk about deeper things and have a better and more full understanding of the knowledge of Christ. In verse 3 he says, and this we will do if God permits. What's he saying here? Does God not want to permit this? No, he's saying if the Lord wills. This is what we will do. Let's go on to verses 4 through 6. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. You know, this verse might be... a taken out of context more than the entire any other verse in the entire book of Hebrews. You know, before we can understand what this passage is saying, I think it's necessary that we talk about what this passage is not saying. And the question for you tonight, is this passage saying that God is not able to forgive those who fall away? Is that what the passage says? I mean, obviously you want to go, no way, but what does the verse say? It says it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Stop. It is impossible to renew these individuals to repentance. So is the verse saying that God cannot forgive them? Is the verse saying that if we fall away, if we fall from grace, then there is no possibility for us to go back to God after we have fallen? Well, someone says, why, sure, Ben, it's right there. It says it right there in the passage. It says it's impossible. All right. My question to you is, how does that fit in? How does this idea fit in with the rest of the entire New Testament? How does this idea that God cannot forgive fit in with 1 John 1, 7 through 9? As long as we are faithful to confess our sins, God is able to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does this fit in with the story of Peter? Peter denied Jesus three times, and yet we see that he was able to become one of the foundational leaders of the church. How does this fit in with the dozens of other examples of forgiveness and, and people who we see get forgiveness 
in the New Testament. The fact is it doesn't. If you look at this verse and understand it that way and you open the Bible for the first time in your life and you read that verse and you just stop reading, of course you're going to go away with the, well, what do I do? I can't get forgiveness? But we have to keep reading. We have to understand the context of what's happening. If he isn't saying you cannot come back from a mistake, then what is he saying? And I think we have to look at the context of the whole discussion. What is the first word of this section, verse 4? It is the word for. What does the word for do? It connects it to the previous passage, does it not? Alright. For, if you do not leave the elementary principles, if you do not stop laying the same foundations over and over again, if you do not stop drinking milk all day long, if you do not exercise your ability to discern good from evil, if you do not go on to perfection, he is saying it is impossible for you to maintain your faith. If you don't leave these first oracles of the principles of God, if you don't leave and go on to perfection and leave this elementary principles, if you don't stop drinking milk, it is going to be impossible for you to maintain your faith. Why? Well, the writer is saying it's not enough to be enlightened once. It's not enough to get a taste of the heavenly gift once. It's not enough to be a one-time partaker in the Holy Spirit. It isn't enough to get a taste of the good Word of God. Because if we only allow ourselves to get taste of it when it's convenient, when we fall away, the Bible tells us there will be no bringing us back to the fold of God. Why? Because we never left the fundamental principles. We never left the elementary principles. And so when someone comes to us and says, hey, you need to come back to church, you need to come be back part of the fold of God, what are we going to say to them? Why? It's just a bunch of hypocrites or, or this, that, and the other excuse. Why? Because you never left the fundamental principles, you never left the elementary principles and so you don't understand what it means to be a Christian. You don't have a full understanding of the great blessing it is to be a Christian. And so no, you're not going to be renewed to repentance because you never had an understanding in the first place of what it meant to repent. You knew what the definition was, but you didn't know how to do it. You know, it's not that Christ rejects us at this point. It's not that Christ rejects us. It's that we've rejected Christ. And it says that we put Him back on the cross. We crucify again ourselves, the Son of God, and put Him to an open shame, it says. That's exactly what the Pharisees did, is it not? They rejected Him. They saw the proof. They saw the truth. They saw the miracles. They saw the signs. They saw the prophecies fulfilled. And they still rejected Jesus. That's exactly no difference from what some do in the church. 
They have tasted the, the good gift. They have tasted the good Word of God. They have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. And they still reject it. Is it that Christ has rejected them? No, it is that they have rejected Christ. You see, some translations even say they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. When we do this, when we have been enlightened and we go back to the world and give up on our faith, we crucify Jesus all over again because we reject Him the same way the Pharisees did. There's no difference in the ones who have tasted the gift and tasted the life of a Christian and rejected it than the Pharisee who saw the miracles and rejected it. Neil Lightfoot even says, the question is not, can God forgive? Instead, the question is, will man repent? That's the idea behind this passage tonight. It's not that God can't forgive. Obviously, God is able to forgive. From the, as long as the east is to the west, God forgives. We're told to forgive others even as Christ has forgiven us. And I don't know about you, but Christ has forgiven me far more than I deserve. God is able to forgive anyone of anything. The question is, are we able and willing to repent? If not, yes, of course, it is impossible to renew ourselves in a spirit of repentance. Verses 7 through 8. For the earth which drinks the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. What's he trying to say? I think he's alluding back to the parable of the soils, is he not? He's talking about the different soils and how people take in the Word of God. The earth is going to receive this good, life-giving rain regardless of what is produced from that rain. That's what he's saying. The earth is going to drink in this rain. Often, as often as it comes upon it, it's going to drink up the rain. And some of these places, some of these spots of land are going to bear herbs that are useful for those who are cultivating it. And in some of these lands, some of these places are going to bear thorns. They're going to bear briars. What happens to those briars and those thorns? We reject them and throw them into the fire. It's the same with us. We are going to take in this life-giving Word of God and allow it to do one of two things. Either we're going to allow it to produce usefulness or we are going to allow it to produce nothingness. And if we are the latter, then our end is no different than these thorns and briars. We are going to be burned up. That is the bottom line. You cannot sugarcoat this passage. That is exactly what this writer of Hebrews is trying to convey. The truth is, both of these options tasted the gift of the Word of God. Both of these options tasted the goodness of it, and one rejected it. God's not going to be the one rejecting us. We are going to be the ones rejecting Him. 
if at the end, if at the end judgment, we are not in line and in the right graces with God, it will have been our fault, not His. Verses 9 through 10, uh, 9 through 12, really, he's got a little bit of a happier message. He says, But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage his audience with this passage. Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Better than what? Better than this burning of briars and thorns I just talked about. He even says, even though I speak to you in this manner, even though I'm speaking to you about, yes, fire and brimstone, it doesn't have to be that way, he says. We are confident of better things concerning you, things that accompany to salvation. It doesn't have to be the, the bad way, you don't have to get burned up like thorns and briars. We don't have to be the ones who crucify all over again the Son of God and put them to an open shame. It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, he says, I'm confident of better things concerning you, that you will inherit salvation. Why? Why will they inherit salvation? Well, it says, number one, God is not unjust. Number two, you have labored in His name. And number three, you have ministered to the saints. What a good list of things. If we will just labor in His name and minister to the saints, and we know that God is never going to be unjust, we'll be all right. But there is a desire to see them finish to the end. Do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. To maintain this hope until the end. We talked about this the other day, about how the importance is of going to the end. There is a temptation for the, Hebrew, the audience of Hebrews and for us tonight to become sluggish in our faith. Could you not explain the, the year of 2020 by that? Sluggish? It becomes easier and easier to stay home, does it not? and to slowly but surely maybe become sluggish in your faith. What is he saying in the rest of this passage? There's a temptation to become sluggish, to never stretch your spiritual senses. To sit there and never grow. Instead, they need to look to some of these examples that they love to call out, right? He says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's about to list one of these people. He's about to list Abraham. We're going to get to that in a second. But what he's trying to say is, 
Look to some of these examples of faith and patience and duration that you've been looking at. All these Old Testament heroes you love to call out. It's almost like the writer is saying, you cherish all these Old Testament heroes, but why don't you actually look at how they live their lives? They lived their lives faithful until the end. They held on to their faith and their hope until the end. Look at their example. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. What does the next passage say? Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Here he lists Abraham, this, this example of Abraham, and we know that Abraham received an oath that through his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This oath of God that God was going to bless him, multiply his family, and therein bless the entire earth. What did he do after he heard this promise? He got up and he went. He did exactly what the Lord said and he followed this oath until the end. He put his faith in this oath until the end. In fact, he tried to put it in his own hands to make up an offspring, did he not? He wanted to fulfill this oath of God that he even made a mistake there with Hagar. But that's besides the point. What did he do? He believed God's oath to the point that he patiently endured the rest of his life, to the point that he put that only begotten son, Isaac, up on the altar to sacrifice him. He believed in this oath of God. And because he believed and because he endured and because he was patient until the end, he obtained the promise that God gave to him. It was fulfilled before his very eyes. His offspring was fulfilled. He got to witness this offspring that was through one day going to bless the entire earth. God's promise and the oath of God are these two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Why? Because when God makes a promise, when God makes an oath, it will be done. By two immutable things, it is impossible for God to tell a lie. What does he say about, about this oath he made? He said he swore by himself. Why did he swear by himself? You know, humans, we're not supposed to do this. Matthew 5, James tells us, don't swear by anything at all. But God swore upon himself. Why? Because there is no one greater than him. Humans often say, I swear to this, I swear to that. And therein doing, the Bible says in this passage, they're trying to say, you know, there's no dispute of this. At the end of this, if I swear to such and such, there's going to be no disputing, I mean what I say. Well, God swore on Himself. Why? Because there's no one greater than Him. And He knew that when He swore upon Himself, it 
would come to fruition. Because of this confidence that we have in God's omnipotence, on God's all power, this immutability, we have a strong consolation. What is this strong consolation? The hope that is set before us. Just look at this hope for a minute. This hope that he talks about in these two verses was promised for the heirs that were to re- get, get it. What else does it say? It was confirmed by the oath of God. This hope that he's talking about is a place of refuge. This is a hope that has been set before us. And lastly, verses 19 through 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We're back to where we were talking about last week. Lastly, we, we saw it's promised to the heirs, it's confirmed by God's oath, it's a place of refuge, it's set before us, and it is an anchor of the soul. An anchor that is both sure and steadfast. Wow. What a hope. Why can we have this hope? Well, the text says, because Jesus Christ is the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He has entered the presence behind the veil on our behalf, and now we've returned full circle to what we were talking about last week. Jesus Christ, high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, what about this hope? What about it? Who is it for? Well, it is for the heirs. The heirs of the promise of the promise of Abraham. Who is it in? It's in Christ. The Christian's hope is in Jesus Christ. Where is it? Where is our hope? It is in the heaven that is to await us. We talked about in chapter 4 the rest that is in front of us. Why? Why can we have this hope? Because Jesus Christ, eternal high priesthood. That's why. Look at this hope. It says it is an anchor of the soul. Steadfast. Sure. You know what that makes me think of? I think we sing a song. At least we sang it when I grew up. Will your anchor hold? I see Bob nodding his head back there. He knows that one. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? You know what the chorus says in that song? It says, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. What a song. Well, you know where they get it? 
from this passage right here. We have an anchor. Steadfast and sure through Jesus. What does this mean to me tonight? How does Hebrews chapter 6 convince me to become a Christian? How does Hebrews chapter 6 convict me that I made the right decision to become a Christian? Tonight I want to ask you one thing. How has your 2020 been? Has it been rough? Do you feel like it's just one catastrophe after the other? Do you feel like there's no control in the midst of the chaos around you? Have you lost your job? Have you lost loved ones? Have you been in fear all year long? Have you lost the normalcy that you once took for granted? Have you been driven to questioning and doubting? Has your life been like a boat tossed to and fro by the winds and waves? Well, Hebrews chapter 6 tells me that God's got an answer for that. God has a strong consolation for that. God has a refuge for that. God has an oath for you tonight that He will be your anchor. This hope that we're talking about tonight in the anchor in the midst of all the craziest times, this anchor is going to keep the same. This anchor is going to be able to keep us sane in this insanity. This anchor is going to remove all of our insecurities, all of our uncertainties about life. And this is the anchor that will withstand all the blows that life throws at it. Why? Because it is steadfast and sure. It is immovable. This is the oath that God makes for you. God has made this oath for you. That He will be an anchor for you. No matter what you're going through or what you're experiencing last week, we know that Jesus knows what it's like. This week, we know that they have established and given us an anchor to throw out so that we can make it so that we can last, so that we can make it to the end and establish and hold on to this hope firm until the end, the text said earlier. The problem is, and there is a problem, the problem is if we haven't left the elementary principles, if we have not left the first oracles, if we have not left the milk of our faith, there is no way we will withstand the storms of life. If we have not exercised our senses to discern good and evil, 
if we are still unskilled in righteousness, if we are not allowing God's Word to pierce into the deepest parts of ourselves, into the joints, into the marrow, into the soul, into the spirit, Hebrews 4.12. If we are still just tasting here and there a little bit of the goodness of God, a little bit here, a little bit there, then it won't be the anchor that failed. It'll be the boat that we build. This foundational boat, this boat that we have built of our faith, laying this foundation of elementary principles, moving on to the meat of the Word, if we have not built a solid boat, it doesn't matter how great this anchor is, it will not sustain us. And it won't be the anchor's fault. You know what that anchor will do? It'll go right down and it won't move. But our boat will be destroyed because we haven't done our job. We never left the elementary principles. We never left the first oracles of God. And so when we're sinking, it's not going to be the anchor's fault. It's going to be our fault. It doesn't matter how steadfast and how sure this anchor is. It's the foundation of our boat. It was made by a baby and is weak and flimsy and not exercised and unskilled in righteousness. That's why in verse 12, what does it say? We cannot become sluggish in our walk. Have you become sluggish? That's why he says in verse 11 that we need to look to this full assurance of hope to the end. And that's why the writer of Hebrews is confident that there are better things concerning you. Tonight, if your boat is just made to, de to be destroyed, tonight, if your boat is just ready to get destroyed by the storms of life, the writer of Hebrews is confident of better things concerning you. It doesn't have to be that way. Your boat can get repaired. Your boat can get fixed. You can seek help. But it's going to take a decision of each and every one of us to pursue maturity. How do you pursue maturity? Someone says, I come to church on Sunday morning. I was here, I sang. I took the Lord's Supper. I prayed. I, I even put something in the little box out there as I went out. What would you do Sunday night? As the saints gathered again to study the Word of God to study more about the meat of the Word, to leave the elementary principles that we sometimes find on Sunday morning and pursue this perfection, to pursue the deeper discussions of faith. What did you do on Wednesday? Many of you are here. You're here to discuss these meteor matters. What did you do on the non-church days? Did you study the Bible? 
How's that reading plan going for 2020? There are many ways that we can leave the elementary principles, but it takes a decision. There are many ways that we can help fix and bolster our boat to be able to withstand the storms of life. But if our boat fails, if our faith fails, it will not have been God's fault because He gave us the anchor of the soul and everything that we needed to withstand the blows and the storms of life. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be the thorns and the briars that get burned up. It doesn't have to be us crucifying Jesus all over again. In fact, God has done everything to where it was the other way. The reason we can withstand the storms of life in this life is because Jesus gives us a better hope. Jesus Christ allows us to have not only a desire of heaven, but the expectation of heaven. That's what the word hope means in the Bible. It is both the desire and the expectation. This is the hope that we've been given from Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. A hope that is better than anyone has ever received. An anchor of the soul that will allow us to get through this life. Tonight I hope that this anchor, this better hope, has impacted you, has convinced, has convicted you tonight as it has me. Next week we're going to be discussing Jesus who is the provider of a better covenant. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament covenant, some of the things in the New Testament covenant, and how the Old Testament is definitely inferior. I appreciate your attention and uh, all of your great support and encouragement throughout this series as we've been looking at Hebrews, the better letter. Tonight we're going to be closing prayer by Brother Rob Strout.